I'm standing on the beach and uh, it is very windy and sunny and uh, the beach here is very beautiful. It is located here in Ngujoku, Zanzibar. My name is Fatma Hamis Said and I am an assistant lecturer from the State University of Zanzibar in the Institute of Tourism. Here in Zanzibar, especially for people who are not specialize in the history in archaeology. I mean, we are mostly told about the history of Zanzibar that goes back on 19th century. That's all we know. So coming here in this place, it is something that surprised me that Zanzibar was existed since 8th to 9th century. So it's something that's very uh, important for the history of Zanzibar, but also for the tourism sector. Most of our people they know the history of Zanzibar since recently, from 19th, 20th century, which is not a history. For me, it's just like a story. My name is Yabdallah Khamis Ali. I'm a head of antiquities Zanzibar government. I'm a researcher working in this division for almost 20 years now. History is a civilization. So if you talk about history, it means that you've talked about civilization. And many of us, we don't know our history of this small island, which is not only just small as an island, but is a very big in history and very, very important in the coast of West Africa and the entire world. I was blown away when I went to Nguijuku just by the range of objects that you get from elsewhere in the world. I'm Dr. Stephanie Wynne-Jones. I'm a senior lecturer in archaeology at the University of York, and I specialise in the Swahili coast of East Africa. There had been people on Zanzibar for thousands of years, and there are lots of earlier sites, but what we see here is the local communities settling in larger sites for the first time inhabitants of Zanzibar, of the East African coast more generally, made a decision to settle in these coastal locations. They cleared the coastal forest, they built houses that they lived in over several generations, and they reached out to a series of really far-flung networks of which somehow they had knowledge and connected themselves into these trading networks with Madagascar, with East Africa, with the Persian Gulf. And Ngujuriku is really the site to understand that because it's where we first see that moment, that sort of transition. And also because it was just such an important site in those networks. You know, it was a destination in the Indian Ocean world. It was a centre of civilization. It was a centre of commerce. 
there was a center of movement of the people. People come together, settled. It was a door of movement from East African coast to the far east, Arab Peninsula, Indian, China, Red Sea, and other places. So for those who are traveling from those areas, they just come and find is a place of living. It is a place of fertilization. It is a place of harmony, peace, calm, and collection. This Indian Ocean trade network is immense. My name is Mark Horton. I'm professor of archaeology, and I've been working at Ngujuku and in Zanzibar since 1984. The Zanzibaris are connecting all the way down to Southern Africa, to the Red Sea, to Arabia, to the Gulf, to India, Southeast Asia, and eventually they're connecting with China as well. Tens of thousands of miles, and that sounds mind-boggling. But this period in the 8th century was actually a period of great globalisation. Other networks are also developing in parallel. The most famous, of course, is the Silk Road, uh, the overland Silk Road that goes from China to the West. The other remarkable network, which is exactly contemporary, is the Viking network, which extends from the Gulf up into the Baltic through... Scandinavia, Britain and Ireland, and even eventually as far as America. And the Vikings were operating a really complicated network, fairly similar to the Swahili ones, in which the exchange was slaves for silver and gold. And we know about this because the silver is turning up in places like Britain and Ireland, and exactly that same silver being mined in Iran, is the same silver that we've also discovered in coins at Ngujoku. So while the Zanzibar Swahili at one end probably had no idea of the Vikings at the other end, nonetheless, they have this connection. When I look at the sea here, I can see uh, some few boats and fishermen are coming from fishing, but also I can see some women are coming from collecting shellfish also, I can see a small local market around, which is surrounded also by small shops. Actually, according to the archaeological evidence, um, this place here would have been a waterfront where a lot of boats um, would have been pulled right up here, waiting for the tide to change so that they can travel back to other places of the world to do business. The beach here in Gujaraku does not look like an enormous international harbour. It's a very shallow beach. When the tide goes out, it's miles away. It's very difficult to walk to the sea. But for this period, this was actually exactly the kind of harbour that served the purpose the best. During this period, boats in the Indian Ocean were sewn. The timbers of the boat are put side to side rather than overlapping and they have holes in them which are bound together very strongly with rope and then the gaps between the planks will have been filled with some kind of sealant and the most common way to bring them into a harbour was literally to beach them to bring them up onto the sand at high tide and to let the tide go out and the boat would settle down onto the sand and because it had a sewn frame they had that flexibility so the hull didn't just break. And so these kind of beaches allowed boats to come right up towards the settlement, 
wait for the tide to go out and then you can move into the settlement quite easily. And the, the boat can stay there until you're ready to leave, bobbing up and down on the tide. Okay, uh, right now I'm approaching to the um, to other place here in the beach. And here in the edge of the beach, the result of archaeologists who has been excavated some of the important places here. They found the foundations and other materials that show that this was a mosque built here when Ungujauku was a busy trade center. But right now there is no ruins, no other kind of building that you can find as evidence. The population here, most of them were Muslim and they used it for their daily prayers. But not only that, but travelers and uh, other merchant sailors who come here, it was easier for them to find the mosque and uh, come for praying and uh, being welcomed. The mosque was not only for um, praying, but it was a sign for those people who are coming far from other places of the world. It means that the people are welcoming them and hospitable. We imagine that they were deliberately sighted to be visible from the sea, almost as a sort of symbol of safe harbour, assuming that the people sailing these seas were mostly Muslims. I think we probably can assume that there were Muslims at Ngujiriku at the period where they built the mosque, but undoubtedly they were also putting this deliberately on the edge of the site to create a statement to people who were coming from the sea. We obviously know that Islam has a presence at this site, but the nature of that might have been quite different. I'm Michelle Alexander. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of York, and my specialty is bioarchaeology. At the moment, I'm specifically looking at diet on the site. It's that whole kind of local diversity in Islam across the Islamic world at this point, uh, where you see very distinctive aspects that come out, depending on where people live. So reflecting on some of the stuff that I've done um, in Spain, um, for example, Islam there can look very different. Um, and certainly in the case of Zanzibar, we do have that Islamic identity coming in, but as part of a mosaic of the identities that are already present and continue to be practiced there um, at the same time. Since the ancient time, the sea is very important. It was important for traveling because it is a means of transport, but also the sea, when we talk about the sea, uh, we should include the fishing activities. I mean, in the deep sea for fishing, and women are going to the shallow water for collecting shells. So it is very, very important by that time. But still today, we are practicing those fishing activities. Uh, one of the important economic sector in Zanzibar, and women are still collecting shellfish for food. The primary source of food at this site is actually the seashore. So that's in sort of inshore fishing and also marine shellfish. Um, and that actually was quite a big surprise for me. We do see some goat, for example, um, chicken, uh, cattle, although that's very low in, in particular. But in general, the numbers of these species um, is quite low. And um, we do see a lot of the hunted game as well. So this real emphasis on the local ecosystem. 
And that might be uh, something that people would find surprising in relation to what they know about um, Islamic diet and cuisine. But actually, even if you have a society that is pervasively Islamic, there will actually be um, very much local traditions in what people draw upon. And, and of course, we have the Sahili um, cultural aspect here, which intertwines very nicely um, with what we know about Islam at this time as well. Also, uh, the sea is very important because even though people here in Zanzibar are 99% are Muslim, some of them are still practicing traditional beliefs. So sometimes few people also are using sea for spiritual issues. So it is very, very important. This is an African town whose origins, whose ideology are strongly African. Only writers in East Africa have always thought that these port cities that developed of which Nguja coup was undoubtedly the richest and most important of the whole East African coast were kind of colonies founded by Arab merchants. Uh, even today, this idea of a kind of half African, half Arab culture and still in some of the tourist books as well. Archaeology has shown that this is definitely not the case. These are indigenous African trading towns. That's not to say that Arab merchants didn't come. It's not to say that a few babies might not have emerged. But also, interestingly, it probably becomes Islamic quite early on. These African societies are being converted to Islam, but they are African. For me, it's very important to know indigenous history. We need to know where you're coming from, from which route, and why we are here, how we develop, how we civilized. The Ngujoko is the first settlements around our islands. And it was a very big city in that time with a lot of people, with a lot of social structures, industries, and people come buy and sell, come with the cultural packages and try to adapt with the local community and the local community adapted their cultures and come a part and parcel of their culture and their life. It has got a lot of trees and bush. There are a few buildings, but the modern one, you know. So you can't imagine that this place was once the place um, where a lot of houses, I can say hundreds of houses were built here during the time when Ngujauku was a busy town. Right now, I mean, it is difficult for someone to believe because nothing has remained here except for few artifacts that um, represent those buildings and other materials that people were using by that time. The high point of this place, you would have sailed to Ngujoku, and you probably would have just seen a whole lot of grass houses, literally along the seafront, and people walking around sumptuously dressed, in beautiful textiles, draped with gold, wearing all these beads and bodily ornaments. They would have looked very opulent. But what we don't find is grand architecture. Clearly, there are substantial buildings, but they're probably all in timber and mud, what we call daub, and probably thatch, coconut thatch would have been on the roofing materials. And um, these are impermanent buildings that would have gone up and probably been replaced every few years as they became rotting in the tropical conditions. Human beings always like to see structures touch 
and see and understand what is going on. Unguja Ku, there's no structures. There's no building there. It is just artifacts from underneath makes us to understand the importance and the old of this town. So for me, the collection of material found in the Ku site with different researchers, with different types, in fact, makes me to understand how Ku was very, very important and how it is important now. Tourists do come to Ngujiraku. Local people come to Ngujiraku as well. We get sort of children passing by and asking us about what we're doing there. And there isn't very much that you can see. There were all these houses, but there's not a lot to see on the ground now. And so working with the Department of Antiquities here, we're developing the visitor centre at the site. We're creating lots of information boards and a leaflet that can take you on a tour around the site to sort of tell this story about how important Ngujiraku was in the past. You can find there are a lot of artifacts in different colours. Some of them are in blue colours. But also you can find, I mean, other artifacts in a um, brown colour with zigzag. This one was uh, for making beads. Uh, by that time, people used to make beads from the shell. But also there are some pieces of glass and uh, there are a lot of artifacts here. I can't even describe, I mean, all of them. Local one and uh, others, you can see that they are imported. Some of them uh, looks like they are new, you know, even though they are eroded, but still uh, they are shining, you know. So there are a lot of artifacts here. I can remember going out one morning from Stone Town down there and was just simply blown away by this incredible sight. The task we undertook in 1984 was to map the site and we worked out it covered around 17 to 20 hectares, which is just an enormous size. And then we put a couple of test trenches in through these archaeology and realised that what was just on the surface was just the tip of the iceberg, that down it went with layer upon layer of all these cultural riches and to find that richness and richness of such early material on the East African coast in general was a practically unique find and it remains to this day. There are other, many other sites have been found belonging to the 8th and 9th centuries but none of them quite have that quantity of material. When you excavate in Gujaraku, the vast majority of everything you find is locally produced ceramics. And I think that's the case in every archaeological site I've ever worked at. But we also have a really broad range of other types of thing. One of the things that I'm really interested in is that we have a lot of artefacts that suggest they were producing things at this site. So we find evidence for iron working. Um, we find a lot of iron slag that's often weighed uh, and just sort of left at the site. And what we bring back are things more like these bead grinders, which would have been used for making shell beads. And you can see these sort of grooves where these pieces were being used again and again for this sort of repetitive work of grinding down shell. We also have spindle whorls, uh, which were probably about um, the production of cotton, thread and later cloth. 
you don't have these sort of centralization of craft production. Instead, it seems to have been happening among the general population of the town. They were all producing things and they were all getting things in return. One thing that's really interesting is that while there is all this wealth quite clearly here, it's not concentrated in one particular place. We don't have some great ruler's palace in which the ruler is controlling all this trade. Everyone seems to be participating. We seem to have a whole number of competing merchant families, all of whom are trying to undertake the trade. They're accumulating the trade goods from Africa, they're bringing it to Zanzibar, and then they're inviting in the merchants who are bringing all this wealth and they're obtaining it through those exchange networks. So on Zanzibar, it seems to be a very egalitarian society. Those things they were getting in return were a lot of glass beads in lots of different colours. Blue is the most common tiny, tiny little wound glass beads and they were all imported mainly from the Persian Gulf and they stand out in the archaeology because they're really bright colours and they sort of pop out at you from the soil. We find a lot of glass. These are all just small sherds of what would have been very fine bottles and maybe even glasses. This is one of my favourite finds which is a tiny, maybe three centimetre, four centimetre tall glass bottle, a perfume bottle maybe, and maybe it would have had aromatic oil in it. We find sort of luxury objects, bronze mirrors from China and sort of copper coal sticks for applying coal around your eyes. All of these artefacts are here in the UK for analysis at the moment. Uh, once we finish working with them, they all go back to Zanzibar, where they live in the stores at the Palace Museum. We also hope some of them might make it into the visitor centre at Ngujiraku. I am in the mangrove creek right now. Uh, there are a lot of mangrove trees here in the, the ocean on the west side. Why did people choose this as the place where they set up this important centre for trade. We believe, or I believe, that it's about a certain combination of resources that you get here. So obviously we've got the sea and the beach. There's also a fringing coral reef. Coral reefs provide very sheltered landing spaces. But then at Ngujiraku, you've also got this wonderful mangrove creek. If you are passing to the mangrove, uh, just like the beach, you enjoy it. The water inside, where you can walk, it is not important. If you can hear, I am within the mangrove. You can hear the sound of the mangrove, you know, because the mangrove, they are small enough to produce the sound when the wind is coming, when they are touching each other. After collecting of shellfish, some of them are coming here for removing, you know, the fish and then the remaining shells were just put down here. You find there are also a kind of shellfish that are found in the mangroves. I don't know in English, but in Swahili we call them tondo. And they are found in the mangrove trees. They are attached themselves. That's where you can find them. <laughs> Mangrove is full of shellfish um, and sort of foodstuffs that you can gather. It provides a shelter to that 
sort of edge of the site. It protects against erosion and against tidal surges. It's a wonderful building material. It's a very strong and straight wood. And the Swahili built with mangrove themselves throughout their history, but they also traded it. And in particular, mangrove is a really important trade good for commerce with the Persian Gulf, where there is no wood, really. And so in order to build these amazing towns of the Persian Gulf at this time... They were importing wood from overseas, and a lot of this probably would have been mangrove coming from East Africa. If we're talking about the importance of the mangrove, the wood were used by the time for buildings, houses, and also for building the boats. It was a very big business, yeah, so it is very, very important until today. So people are still using mangrove wood today. The point of researching a site like Ngujiraku is, of course, partly because it's just a fascinating site and it's a wonderful place to work, but it's also about giving sites like Ngujiraku their rightful place on a global stage and recognising that in this period of the 8th to 9th centuries, they really were an important player. Not only is the early history of Zanzibar and Ngujiraku important to Zanzibaris and to Africans, but actually is a much, much bigger global story. We now live in the era of Black Lives Matter, in which African heritage and history is rapidly being rediscovered across the world. And the African contribution to world history and world civilization now needs to be stated and understood and appreciated globally. And I think that, you know, this small site on Zanzibar tells that story better than anywhere else I know in Africa about these extraordinary global networks and that global African achievement. Development of any nation depends on their own history. Any nation, if they don't know their own history, is just like an infant. So history is a backbone of each and everything, mostly for the country like Zanzibar. Now it is a time to make sure that we are trying to develop the Ngujioko site, to let understand our people that Zanzibar is not only started only in 1920th century, but to hear and listen and find a way that, ah, there's something important actually in the history of Zanzibar, this small island, but with a very big history, very important in Africa and the world also. When we found that this place is still having a lot of archaeological evidence, <laughs> I'm very surprised because I didn't know these things are still existing. You know, but on the other side, I have a sad reactions. Still, there are few measures, I can say, that had been taken to protect this place. And also, people don't know their meaning and their value. Many, many people don't know this you know, in Swahili language, if you say something, uku, uku, it means that big, 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 paramount, great. Nguja is the name for the entire island, which is often just known as Zanzibar. And Nguja Ku 
I actually love this name because Ngujiriku now is this very small little village and yet it keeps this name from this moment when they traded and lived and produced sort of so intensely in the 8th and 9th centuries that they're still known as the capital of Nguja to the present day. So shall we say Nguja uko, it means it is big Nguja, it is great Nguja. Is a place where you can find each and everything great in this area, in the east upper coast. So that is why they just call it Ngujauko. Ngujauko, Zanzibar's hidden history featured Fatma Saeed, Abdallah Ali, Michelle Alexander, Stephanie Wynne Jones, and Mark Horton. It was supported by the University of York and the Department of Antiquities in Zanzibar. It was produced by Philippa Gearing at Sonderbug Productions. Music was by City and the Band. Mm-hmm.